Welcome to the Church and Culture Podcast, a weekly discussion with Dr. James Emery White on the latest trends happening in culture and where and how the church should respond. Jim is the founding and senior pastor of Mecklenburg Community Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, president of Serious Times, a ministry devoted to exploring the intersection of faith and culture, former professor of theology and culture at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he also served as their fourth president, and the author of more than 20 books. I am your host, Alexis Dry, and I can't wait to dive into this week's conversation. Well, hello and hi to you too, Jim. Um, in an earlier podcast episode, as you know, we dove into the subject of homeschooling. Um, you mentioned in that episode that you and your wife um, homeschooled your four children at kind of different points in their educational careers. And you've often spoken um, and written about some of the many benefits of homeschooling. And at MEC, which is for those of you who are new to the podcast, um, that's the church where Jim is the senior pastor, where I also work. There are a lot of families at this church who homeschool. Um, um, their children. But all that to say, it would be disingenuous to present homeschooling as like the best educational option or to assume that everyone who homeschools does so for the exact same motivations. In fact, what we did not get a chance to unpack in that previous conversation was, um, I'm, I would just say for lack of a better term, the dark side of homeschooling. Um, before I expound a little bit more on what I mean by that, can you provide a quick summary for our listeners um, of the of a couple of the major reasons why you and your wife did choose to homeschool your kiddos? Yeah, I, I do believe that it is the best possible educational option for some. I do. And it's not just best for everyone or possible for everyone. So uh, we homeschooled our kids for several reasons. I'll give you a quick shopping list. First, we felt that it fostered family intimacy. Uh, when the family is together, I mean, it's really together. Homeschooling keeps the family together, the older children with the younger children, full interaction. Um, for I remember when this was kind of brought to our, our thinking in a keen way. Um, for one year, we put our oldest daughter, Rebecca, into a private Christian school. It was her first grade, first grade year. We were experimenting with various things. And, and I remember she would come home irritable and she would come home impatient with her younger siblings. The intimacy that she had with us that we all had together was just radically different than what we had experienced before. We went back to homeschooling after that uh, for various reasons. And one of the things we noticed was that the difference relationally within the family dynamic was immediate and it was palpable. Intimacy returned in ways that we were accustomed to. Another reason that we homeschooled was that it allows for controlled socialization with peers. I, I've always found it interesting. I kind of smile whenever people use socialization as a baseball bat against homeschooling. I mean, socialization was exactly one of the reasons why we did, because we thought it was optimal to socialize that way. Um, our thinking was that sending your child away at the earliest of ages to be with 25, 30 other kids, one adult supervising uh, for the bulk of every day and every week away from home, away from family, was not normal socialization in light of the entire history of civilization. Uh, we found that homeschooling fosters uh, positive socializing by letting you control, letting us control the friends that, you're, that our child, children had, uh, as opposed to just whoever or whomever was popular or whoever they happened to be thrown with in that particular class. So we were able to let be the kind of the control factor there and um, a third reason is that we felt homeschooling was uh, ensured congruency between our values and our teachings and our beliefs and education. I, you just imagine what it would be like for a child to hear at home there's a God who loves them 
and then go to school and hear that there isn't a God at all. Or at home that God created everything that there is, but at school there's no God involved in creation at all. Or having decided to wait to introduce your child to the adult world of sexuality until they are age appropriate, only to have your eight-year-old come home and tell you they learned about condoms that day, or that their teacher, Mrs. Johnson, showed them a picture of her wife. Another reason that we homeschooled is that it removes the tension, and, and this is kind of similar to what I just said, but it's, it's different. It removes the tension between the world your child lives in at school and the world they live in at home, and it allows there to be just one world. Uh, I really do feel sorry for, for children today. Uh, they're trying to um, survive and navigate two radically different environments with two very vastly different value systems. You tell them they can't see a movie, for example, or download a particular app or go to a particular party. But at school, everybody is seeing that movie. Everybody's using that map. Everybody's planning what they're going to wear to that party. That creates enormous tension between you, the child, and their school world. They live in two worlds, one that is home and church, one that is school and peers. Uh, one is going to win that fight. And I'll tell you right now, it's probably going to be the school. And it will create resentment and tension toward the home and the church. Uh, another reason, I know you asked for a couple, but I'm on a roll. Another, <laughs> but I think it's important to get all this out here because we're going to get into a lot of dark stuff about why you, you know. But another reason we homeschooled is that it enables you to tailor the educational approach you take with your child. As the father of four, and, and you're a mother of four, you know this, um, all four learn differently. And they learn in different rates and speeds. Uh, most school settings are simply not able to individualize. They're just not. They, they have to create a one-size-fits-all approach out of necessity. There's just too many students, too few teachers. It's not anybody's fault. It's just the nature of the beast. And uh, another big reason for us in terms of homeschooling was that it afforded, and this was very important to us to, as well, the flexibility for family time. The flexibility and for excursions and travel and 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 serving. This may not be important to all families as much as it was to us, but because of the flexibility homeschooling provides, whenever I had a chance for one of my children to travel with me, and I was afforded the opportunity to do a fair amount of travel throughout those years, uh, both locally and internationally, uh, and and I. One of the big things that I thought was very important was that the children travel and could be exposed to those things and that bonding time with me and, and part of their education. And so whenever I, I had a chance for one of my children to travel with me, uh, they could. Uh, school calendars were never an impediment. Whenever there was an event, whenever there was an activity, whenever there was a concert, a play, a festival that we felt would be beneficial, we didn't have to worry about getting permission from some other group. Uh, for them to be out or gone, or we had to worry about the calendar. And also because of the nature of my own vocation, Fridays are my day off. And because of homeschooling, we could make Friday our family day. Uh, when And so, and also when there were serving opportunities or internship opportunities at the church or other agencies and organizations for our kids, we could take full advantage uh, without concern for what day of the week it might land or what hours of the day. Last reason, then I'll, I'll be quiet. We, we, we chose homeschooling, uh, but I am. I'm an enthusiast for homeschooling. I really am. I'm such a proponent. But homeschooling gives you the freedom to let your child chase their individual gifts and, and, and their individual passions in a unique way. 
for example, our youngest son, Zach, was heavily inclined, naturally inclined toward music and the arts from his earliest days. It was freakish. We were able to tailor his education to include an abundance of music and internships with arts teams and, and more. Today, he is a pastor of worship and he's chasing his calling with ferocity. Uh, we feel homeschooling uniquely served that. So yes, my wife and, and I homeschooled all four of our children. For us, it was the best decision uh, and we still look on it as the best decision for us to this day. All four of our kids walk closely with Christ. All four went to premier universities. All four have been engaged in full-time vocational ministry at one season or another. And as another testimony to how positive it was for our family, not just me and Susan, but for them as well, all four of our kids are now married with kids and all four have made the decision to homeschool. Uh, so anyway, those were our reasons. Uh, when we started homeschooling, this was back in the 1980s. Today, it's it's much more popular. It's much more mainstream than it was when we started. And uh, recently, there was a massive increase again in home education due to COVID because of frustrations that people had with pandemic-related campus closures and distance learning. So that would be another reason that if we were homeschooling today, I'm sure we would add that to the list mm. as well. Well, as I mentioned earlier, not everybody homeschools for the same reasons that you just listed, or maybe they do, they would list some of those same reasons, but they have very different values in mind than some that you just suggested. In fact, we both read an article recently released by the Washington Post that details some of the more ideologically charged factions of homeschooling. You care to expound a little bit more on that? Uh, that article was a lot more than just ideologically charged <laughs> factions, wasn't it? It explored much that can be toxic within homeschooling today. It was actually titled The Revolt of the Christian Homeschooler. Uh, and we'll link people to that in the in the show notes. Covers a lot of ground, but there was one family in particular that it kind of featured as a way of, of a bridgehead onto the scene of many issues. Uh, a family in Virginia, they'd been raised to believe that homeschooling was the only way to go, um, but rebelled against that idea as, as time went on. Uh, the parents themselves have been raised in Christian homes and they had been homeschooled and they just naturally were going to homeschool again. But they but they it's but they stopped they, because it, 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 it was very toxic for them. And the older they got, the more toxic they realized that it was. They had been taught to believe that public schools were tools of a demonic social order, uh, government indoctrination camps. Uh, devoted to the propagation of, of nothing but lies and the subversion of Christian families. That mindset would not be present among most homeschoolers, of course. They may have concerns about secular education uh, and have some of the same dynamics for wanting to homeschool that I did, but they would not be so dismissive about public education, much less the many dedicated and devoted Christians who are serving in public education as salt and light and uh, are just fantastic teachers creating some great experiences for those kids. Well, this particular family was part of a group that made, and and, and here's, here's, I think, maybe the way to put it. They made homeschooling more than homeschooling. It, it became part of a larger culture and way of life that a lot got attached to it. As mentioned in the Washington Post article, and I think fairly, it involves a number of things, including a conscious rejection of contemporary ideas about biology, uh, history, gender equality, the role of religion in American government, uh, very ideologically driven. And the idea was to raise a generation 
that would seek political power and cultural influence to reshape and take over America. So a Christian nationalism, another subject that we did a podcast on, uh, was running fast, wild, deep, and free. Uh, homeschooling as the only way to raise a child was so deeply ingrained in their families that it led to a bitter breakdown with their extended families when they chose not to do that. So yes, what drives some to homeschool is not really what drove us. Uh, we were not as ideologically charged as some are today, or at least in the ways that they are today. We just felt it was the best way to raise and educate our children. Hmm. It makes me think of something that we talked about on a recent episode um, about cults, that we mentioned that one of the characteristics that a lot of cults share is a distrust of formal education. And yet it is true that a lot of families do homeschool in part because, as you mentioned, like they are dissatisfied with maybe some of the, the ideological bent of their local public schools, um, but families that I would hardly consider cultish, right? So where where is that line between dissatisfaction and distrust? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. While we, and again, I'll, I'll speak personally, we weren't driven by ideology as much as some are today. We cared about ideology. Uh, we cared what our kids might have been taught in school that would go against our core values and beliefs. And I think almost any homeschooler would say that. Uh, we were concerned about what they would be exposed to and what we would consider an age inappropriate way or how randomly, uh, you know, almost random exposure to peers that we were not able to control who those peers were would shape them. The difference between dissatisfaction and even a lack of trust and, and being cultish in your thinking or behavior. And I think you can have dissatisfaction and distrust without being cultish. Uh, is that with appropriate homeschooling, you're, you're trying to parent your children and just not having the school parent them. You're, you're, you're trying to blend solid education with a Christian worldview. You're not trying to isolate them. Uh, or you know, mo most Christian homeschoolers I know give their kids a very well-rounded education, extremely well-rounded. Uh, they're not trying to keep their kids away from every single thing that they might disagree with. No, they're simply wanting to be the ones who introduce those ideas, even the ones they might disagree with, to their children and help them know how to think about it in a Christian worldview. And so in the hands of a parent who is a Christ follower rather than in the hands of an intellectual predator. I think the way most homeschoolers feel about public education is vastly different than the way cults would teach people to feel about education. Cults tend to want to say, don't, don't get educated. I mean, don't even get an education. Uh, they want to divorce children from education altogether. That's not in the DNA of a typical homeschooler. They're, they're, they're maniacs for that child getting the best education possible, getting the best schools possible. And, and uh, if anything, they're, they're homeschooling to enhance their child's education, not to diminish it or prevent it. Yeah, I think that I think the conversation or the topic about parental rights is a big concern or, or one of the arguments made for homeschooling that parents can feel sometimes that schools infringe too much on what they would consider their own parental rights. In fact, we've talked on a previous episode before about how, for example, some schools have policies in place that permit teachers to keep a child's gender transition at school confidential from their parents. So the parents don't know about that. And yet, again, like I feel like we're just kind of – there is a dark side to that too, right? Which is that sometimes parents can take upon so much of the – like so many parental 
so can play such an authoritative role in in terms of their children uh, with possibly dangerous ideology that they end up harming their child. I, I'm just thinking, for example, um, you've probably read Tara Westover's memoir, Educated. It was, yeah, it came out um, a little while ago. It was huge. But it's a perfect example of that. Like, how does a Christian parent guard themselves from making that mistake? Yeah, this is where we begin to get into toxic homeschooling. We've been dancing around it, but let's get into it. And the story of Tara Westover is an apt one. Um, if people aren't familiar with it, Westover was um, the youngest of, of seven children, I believe it was, born in Idaho to Mormon survivalist parents. Uh, she had five older brothers. She had an older sister. Uh, her parents were suspicious of doctors. They were suspicious of hospitals. They were suspicious of public schools. They were suspicious of the federal government. Uh, Westover was born at home. She was delivered by a midwife. She was never taken to a doctor or a nurse. Uh, she was not even registered for a birth certificate until she was nine years old. Uh, her father resisted getting formal medical treatment for any of the family, even when they were seriously injured. The children were treated only by their mother, who had studied herbalism, herbalism and other methods of alternative healing. All the siblings were just loosely homeschooled by their mother. Uh, it was an older brother that finally taught her how to read. She was physically and emotionally abused by members of the family. And when she later told her family about that, they just told her that she was under the control of Satan. Uh, she took it upon herself though to, this is, uh, you know, to study and to learn and wound up going to college on a scholarship. And then after that, pursuing graduate work, some of the most elite uh, schools in, in the world. It's a remarkable story uh, that she tells. I, I think most homeschoolers guard against such extremes by working with other homeschoolers um, and being involved in, 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 in a community and, and the community and, and the teaching of solid churches uh, that tend to take the fringe off, you know. Uh, in other words, they aren't isolated and they're uh, well taught and well discipled and with solid theologies. Uh, and with good, solid parenting skills being given. Um, so uh, that lack of isolation is, is, is critical. Really, it's about being holistically Christian as a family, which means a functional family with values that it's not just ideology or discipline. It, it's, it's, it's love and it's respect and it's nurture and it's, it's, it's not just ideological conformity. Well, um, to go back to what, some of the motivations that you were sharing about why you and Susan cho chose to homeschool, you talked about how homeschooling does give you the opportunity to relate education with the Christian faith. So, you know, their children don't have a compartmentalized understanding of spirituality. And yet, again, if we're exploring toxic homeschooling, I mean, we have to understand that not every Christian even claims to interpret the Bible the same way. So for example, you know, that couple that was interviewed for the Washington Post article, they shared that their parents, you know, presented as truth to them ideas such as, you know, that the universe is only eight, less than 8,000 years old, that dinosaurs were aboard Noah's Ark, and that Christians could outpopulate atheists and Muslims by scorning birth, birth control. How big of a deal is this? With your permission, I'd like to give a, a, a maybe a tad bit longer of an answer to this, uh, and 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 speak to some speak to this on, on a wider level. I, I think I think this is very significant, and I think it's something homeschoolers have got to wrestle with. All homeschoolers, 
in the article, the husband slash father of the family actually left the Christian faith over this, abandoned it. Um, and just said, you know, I just can't believe any of it anymore. And it's not just because of the oppressive, stifling nature of how he'd been raised, but because he discovered that much of what he'd been taught was, in his thinking as an adult, reflecting on it on his own, ridiculous. Uh, I've gone on record about matters related to faith and, and science, that some Christians, far from the majority, uh, but some feel that to be biblical and to put forward a Christian education means embracing things that are scientifically un unconscionable, you know, just dubious isn't strong enough of a word. And I would say like a young earth, uh, we can provide links to the show notes to some of those conversations and blogs and writings of mine and others. But personally, I think it's a big deal because you can have exactly have what happened to the man in the story. Uh, the Christian faith was conveyed to him in a way that was intellectually unembraceable once he was old enough to exercise intellectual freedom. Uh, I just wish Christians would do a better job. And, and here I'm, I'm wearing so many hats, a fellow homeschooler, a pastor, um, a, a professor of theology, former president of a seminary, just begging people. I just wish we would do a better job of being Christian biblicists, um, which means you fully embrace the scriptures as divine and authoritative, and I would add inerrant, but you read it with interpretive skill and insight. I mean, common sense interpretive skill and insight. There's a whole field of this called hermeneutics. It's the science of interpretation, which means if we're really going to say that the text is inspired, then you need to interpret it fairly or you're doing violence to this text that was inspired. You really want to get at what was inspired. Now, and when you do, there is no contradiction whatsoever between science and faith and between science and scripture. Now, here's here's why. Let me chase this rabbit. Um, uh, I often teach my theology students that there's 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 three things to keep in mind uh, when reading, for example, the creation narrative in the Bible. The first is that you have to keep in mind that we're dealing with a Hebrew book. Uh, and that's significant because there's three ways of looking at reality classically in, in Western civilization. Uh, there's the Greek way, which is largely descriptive and explanatory. The Greek way of looking at the world uh, has an emphasis on rationality. Uh, Aristotle, for example, felt that once you had defined something, you had exhausted its essence. You were done. When you approach something with Greek questions, uh, you tend to be searching for shape and substance and, and definition. So you might approach something like a car. And, and Greek questions would be, what is a car? What does it look like? What does it feel like? It's all description. That's the Greek way. A second way of looking at reality would be considered the Latin way, which is primarily concerned with method. A Latin question would ask, how does this work? You know, how do we do this? What are the steps involved? Uh, so again, let's to go back to our car. <laughs> Latin questions wouldn't be, what does it look like or feel like? A Latin question would be, what is making this sucker run? Mm. You know, uh, uh what connects the engine to the wheels? How, how does gas create energy? Now, most of us tend to look at the world uh, in Greek and Latin ways because if you're from the West, uh, you're from a Greek and, Greek and Latin culture. Uh, so it's natural that we then take our Greek and Latin questions to the Bible. The problem is you can't always ask Greek or Latin questions of the Bible because it's not a Greek or Latin book. It's Hebrew. 
which is an entirely different way of looking at reality. The first 39 books of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, were written by Hebrews in the Hebrew language. The 27 books that make up the New Testament, while written in Koine Greek largely, um, were written also by Hebrews with, again, a Hebrew worldview and mindset. And the Hebrew way of looking at things is just vastly different than the Greek or Latin way. They write about things differently. They, they, they talk about things differently. Different things matter. The, the Hebrew mind was concerned with, with what a thing is for and does it work. Matters of use, utility, value were paramount. So let's go back to our car. The Hebrew wouldn't ask what a car looked like, wouldn't ask how it runs. The Hebrew would say, why would I want a car in the first place? <laughs> what would you what would you want a car for? And 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 where would you want it to take you if you had it? And is it gonna be better than walking? Is it better than my camel? This this is why you can read all four. Uh, this is something a lot of people never even think about. You can read all four biographies. These are biographies of the life and teaching of Jesus and never once find a physical description of him. Unthinkable to a Western mind. <laughs> uh, four biographies, four different authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. He's never described physically in any of them. Why? To the Hebrew mind, why would I do that? It never entered their Hebrew mind to do that. It wasn't important. Um, or consider when you read an angel that visited someone, the question was never, you know, what did he look like? That was not important to a Hebrew. The question was always, what does he want us to do? Uh, so what does this have to do with reading Genesis? I'm actually going to get to that. <laughs> um, it, it's simple. We're, we're, we're going to want to take Greek and Latin questions uh, to it and expect Greek and Latin answers. And we're not going to get them because it's a Hebrew book. And so when we read something like God created the heavens and the earth, which is the opening line of Genesis, the first question that we're going to have is, how did God create the heavens and the earth? The Greek in us wants it explained. The Latin in us wants it described and detailed. What Genesis doesn't do is do that. Genesis doesn't tell us how God did it. Only that he did it. It's a Hebrew book. Mm. Uh, but that's not all to keep in mind as you read the book of Genesis. You also have to remember, as I remind my students, um, it was written in pre-scientific phenomenological language. When the author of Genesis looked at the world, and Moses is traditionally seen as the author and compiler of Genesis, not only did he have a Hebrew worldview, but he used pre-scientific phenomenological language. It's all they had to use. Mm -hmm. And here's how that works. If someone doesn't understand what I'm talking about, um, the... the um, you look out your door in the morning, you see the sun rising. So you write about the sun rising. And later in the day, you might write about the sun setting. That's what I mean by phenomenological language. It's rooted in what you see. It's rooted in a phenomenon. Um, and pre-scientific, they did not know that what they were seeing was anything but the way things actually were. The sun did rise. The world was flat. At the edge of the world, the ocean, you know, the ocean dropped off or the world dropped off. I mean, that's what your eyes told you. And we still talk that way. Even our trained meteorologists will tell you what time sunrise will be or what time sunset will be. The only difference is that now we know that's phenomenological language. We, we talk that way, but we know that the sun doesn't rise and the sun doesn't set. So keep in mind, this is an ancient text. Yes, those who follow Jesus believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God. But the idea of inspiration 
means that God worked through the authors so that they wrote and compiled exactly what he wanted them to. Yet each writing of the Bible uh, reflects their personalities, the writing style of that author, their historical and cultural settings. And that leads to the third dynamic to keep in mind. Uh, you always have to ask what style or genre did the author write in? When it comes to the opening of Genesis, it's it's not hard to spot if you take it at face value. It's poetry. It's epic saga, uh, specifically a combination of prose narrative and epic poem. It wasn't trying to be a scientific text. It wasn't trying to be a scientific treatise, um, at least. And, and it wasn't even in the first few chapters really trying to be a detailed history. Moses got into more detailed history later as he continued, but the opening chapters wasn't. Um, uh, now, apply that to our big example, okay, this idea of a young earth and and, and something that's huge in terms of, of what some people feel like that they might have to have a part of homeschooling and that affects kids as they get older. Apply that to the idea of days in Genesis. Uh, what did the author of Genesis mean by day in light of everything we've just talked about? For example, let's say you don't read the opening section of Genesis as poetry, but as a precise scientific statement. Let's go at it Greek and Latin. Well, you want Greek and Latin answers, so to your Greek, you want uh, Greek and Latin answers to your Greek and Latin questions. So, by golly, you're going to force that text to give you Greek and Latin answers, which would mean that when you read the word "day" in Genesis, uh, or that something happened on a day or in a day, you automatically say, "We have to say 24-hour solar day. Mm-hmm. We have to bring, give it a Greek, Latin, modern, scientific." precise interpretation. And then from that, you're off to the races. You use histories and genealogies and the Bible and calculate that the age of the earth has to be around between six to 8,000 years old. At least you say, according to the Bible. And I got to believe it. Doesn't matter how much it flies in the face of science and rationality. Which would mean that as these kids grow up, uh, you're telling them that all of the scientific evidence, and I mean all of the scientific evidence of the Big Bang happening about 14 billion years ago, the earth being about four and a half billion years old is just wrong. Mm -hmm. That the light we see coming from stars, billions of light years away, the the geological stratigraphy we see in places like the Grand Canyon ranging from 200 million to 2 billion years ago, the age of the fossils, of dinosaurs has to be either ignored or dismissed by spending incredible amounts of energy on scientifically almost ridiculous theories that try to explain it all away in light of a supposed young earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is that the way? Do we have to do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> is that really the best way to understand the meaning of day in Genesis? And I would argue, obviously, that it's not. That the mention of days was just an ancient poetic way of talking about the fact that God did it in space and time. Uh, people who try to make it a scientific statement about seven literal 24-hour days, making the age of the universe, again, between six, 8,000 years old, I believe are not reading the text carefully. They're not reading it the way it was inspired. They're not reading the genre in which it was written. In fact, how could God have, God have wanted to inspire the writer of Genesis to convey scientific precision about literal 24-hour solar days when, according to the text, the sun and the moon were not even created until the fourth day? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know... And, and somebody says, that's why when somebody says, well, I, th- I thought you were supposed to take the Bible literally as a Christian. I want to say, yes, I think you are. You're just not taking it literally enough. Yeah. You're not reading it literally, carefully enough. 
You couldn't have even had a 24-hour solar day until the fourth day because there was nothing in existence to be solar about. If you're going to read it like that kind of a statement. I think God could have inspired the writer to have been a little more precise if that's what he meant to convey. Anyway, this was an epic, poetic, figurative language. And that's not all. Just to get my last little bit out so I don't leave the conversation hanging. The word day itself, and another thing that you always need to do as a serious student of scripture is look at the, the original language. And the word day in Hebrew, yom, uh, yeah, it can mean a 24-hour solar day, but you can drive a truck through it. Yom meant uh, a segment of time from a year to several years to an age, even an era. Uh, we use the word day in a similar way now. We talk about our grandfather's day, days gone by, olden days. Um, the use of the word day or yom in Genesis could have stood for any period of time, even indefinite periods. It was a literary device. It was not a scientific declaration. So the actual days referenced poetically in Genesis were undoubtedly reflective of indefinite periods of time, different geological eras. It could have been millions of years in length, allowing for everything from the dinosaurs to the ice age. And, and, and let me just point out that God doing it this way, creating over time, doesn't take anything away from the miraculous nature of creation, nor does it force you into embracing naturalistic evolution. Uh, I mean, what the Christian says is God could have created any way he wanted. And if he chose to use that, so be it. Um, and, and even further, if you study naturalistic evolution, which I have to some degree, um, you you can't you can't you you can't hold to evolution without being a theistic evolutionist, because there's just it's just too many things that can't be explained outside of a God intervening and guiding the entire evolutionary process. So none of this pulls you further away from God; it draws you closer to Him. Hmm. Well, I know you use an example from Genesis. I mean. In, in- with that rub between or perceived rub, which isn't exactly there between faith and, and science. But I mean, you could have chosen, gosh, so many issues throughout the Bible, so many different types of genres that are all influenced either by phenomenological language or just by cultural sensitivities that maybe how old the earth is doesn't matter as much to your kiddos, but there are scores of ways throughout the Bible in which we can misinterpret or read in our own personal views into the Bible and and really come out with some doctrine that's really harmful. Or, I mean, gosh, just the history of the church and racism is a great example of that. But I mean, you can, there's so many things like that. So it's not even just, just, I mean, I, I just, I want people to understand that it's it's much bigger than just the creation account. I mean, there's so Absolutely. many. I, I just use that because that's the, right. I, that's almost like the big lightning rod. Yeah. That secular press often points to and homeschoolers feel like is a battle line where that's got to be a hill that they die on. Mm-hmm. And and you've got a, a, you know, we're beginning to see a real trail of, of bodies and faiths in its wake. But you're right. You're right. There's just, you know, we, we when we bring our stuff to Scripture to make it say what we want it to say ideologically, mm-hmm. often reflecting not just, say, areas of ignorance, but areas of racism, misogyny. Yeah. Uh, sexism, so many different things where we just have, um, where we're bringing, and let's just go ahead and say it, we're bringing our sin and trying to validate and indoctrinate it and spiritualize it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we're going to get into the really dark side of homeschooling, this is such a pleasant conversation. But I mean, I do feel like, and again, this is not the majority. This, I, I will. This is a minority, but it's it's. I'll go further and say we're talking about the fringe. Yes, yes, absolutely. But I do feel like we it would we do have to talk about the real the realization that the lack of oversight that homeschooling families have can 
be a positive thing, or it can be very dark and that it can be a breeding ground for abuse. I'm going to talk a little bit more about that. It, it, yeah. I mean, this has been, this is documented. I mean, we just know that this is taking place and it's where homeschooling can, as you say, become, be this most toxic and most dark. Um, one of, one of the good things about public schools that is that when signs of physical abuse are present, it's reported. Mm-hmm. Uh, not so in a lot of homeschooling situations, maybe arguably most. Um, tied to this is how strong corporal punishment is taught. Uh, Susan and I use corporal punishment. I mean, I, I, I've I've been I've mentioned that a thousand times in different places and talking about parenting. We did use corporal punishment with our kids, but the kind that is often promoted in some homeschooling circles is to me repugnant and is abusive. Uh, instead of shaping the will without breaking the spirit, which is the goal of all discipline, it seems more intent on breaking the spirit. In fact, it used to be some of the um, used to be where they actually used the phrase "you want to break their spirit." Mm-hmm. Which, which is, to me, just I, I, mind-boggling. I have no interest in breaking a child's spirit. You want to shape their will. Um, and, and we're not even talking spanking. I mean, that, 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 I mean we're, we're talking about children being terrorized with rubber hoses and broomsticks multiple times a week for things simple, as simple as failing to pay attention to schoolwork. Um, another aspect of abuse is kind of, you know, is, is, is how in some of these fringe things is very patriarchal, uh, and a, a patriarchal understanding of homeschooling and culture and life and the role of daughters and women. The father doesn't just lead. They are autocratic. They are dictatorial. They, they have complete rule. Um, and children live in utter subjection to his rule. You, you don't find anything of, of the mutual submission that Paul so beautifully described in Ephesians uh, or of Paul's added admonishment, fathers do not exasperate your children. In other words, don't raise them in a way that breeds that kind of resentment and anger and bitterness. And from this obviously can also flow not just physical abuse, but emotional abuse. And because of the male-centric nature of the family, girls are often raised in a way that is very misogynistic uh, to aspire to only two things. You know, little girl, you've got two ambitions in life. You can aspire, you can bear, and you can raise children. And it's often reduced to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, we're talking fringe groups, fringe families here. This is not mainstream Christian homeschooling. This is toxic homeschooling. Right. I guess the only thing I would say to that, and maybe this is my last question, but yes, we're talking about fringe groups. And yet I also... I'm just also so aware of the fact that nobody wakes up one day all of a sudden with extreme views. Like that is a process. And so f- I, I, what I would hate is for families listening to this who homeschooled be like, well, that that's just crazy. I, that's That would never be me. It's not me. This is, those are people, that's like a car wreck. You just wave or you just watch it as you go by and just feel sorry for them. And then completely dismiss like that we all have a capacity for evil. We all have a capacity for, I mean, we've talked enough about, you know, just cults and we've talked enough about conspiracy theories and all the thing to realize that we're more susceptible than we like to realize to things. So what advice for those who are homeschooling um, or listening to this and are interested in homeschooling, what advice would you give to them for staying clear of this darker side of, of homeschooling? You know, I was thinking as you were talking, you know, we can all be this, we can all be this. My mind kept thinking we can all be deceived. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's that 
Well, let me say that you can get as isolated and infused with strange fringe ideas by uh, living in the wilderness of Idaho, cut off from civilization, as you can by spending time on the internet. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and you know, you don't have to be cut off that way. You can just be in a little echo chamber bubble where you're exploring site leading to site, and all of a sudden you just get into conspiracy stuff or weird stuff or fringe stuff and ideas, and it's all being put forward as fact or truth. Or here are these bogus studies or whatever, and they, you know, they have they try to have all kinds of letters by their name and yet they're not mainstream. They're not at all. And all of a sudden you're down a rabbit hole and you, you took the wrong pill. Mm-hmm. Um, so be careful. I, my, so I guess my first point, be careful about your source material. Yeah. I, I, I sometimes will, will, will say to people, the scariest thing I sometimes will hear someone say is, well, I'll, I'll research that. What do you mean? <laughs> Cause I know what I know what I mean by research as a PhD academic who was trained to do research that is peer reviewed. I, I know the rigors of research, how to evaluate sources and things of that nature. When that somebody says they're just going to research, that just means, okay, you're going to go wild in the internet and, and I'm going to go fast and pray for what you click. So be careful about your source material. Second, have a vision. Have a target on the wall for what you're after as a family when it comes to homeschooling. Have a good, clear, biblical vision and don't get don't get sidestepped away from that. Make sure you know why you're doing what you're doing. You'll need that anyway because days are long and kids are real and life is hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, in my book, A Mind for God, uh, I cover what our target on the wall was when it comes to a Christian mind. We can link information about that book in the show notes. It's been very helpful to homeschoolers. We've heard over the years. Um, so uh, I would encourage that, perhaps. I would watch what community mm-hmm. you align yourself with, and not just in terms of homeschooling groups, but churches. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there distorted views of discipline, education, patriarchy, science, uh, misogyny that, that are being propagated? Finally, seek mentors in homeschooling where you like what you what you saw happen. Uh, one of the things that I don't like is that I, I see a lot of homeschoolers looking for their homeschooling mentors or peers, mm-hmm. or somebody who just happens to have a large following on TikTok or Facebook, but they're they're in the midst of it. I'm not so sure that that's the best mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you want someone who's maybe done it, mm-hmm. and and maybe they're done with it. Mm-hmm. And you've had a chance to see what happened as a result of what they did. Yeah. Uh, yeah and you like what you see happened, uh, meaning the kids turned out normal and happy and on-ramped to life. And they went to solid universities and they embraced Jesus as adults and and they celebrated their home. They still celebrate their homeschool experience as adults looking back on it. Those are mentors you want. And I would I would find them, I'd seek them out and I'd pick their brains and I wouldn't look down on them, you know, just because they may not be up on the latest curriculum anymore or the latest website. What they can give you though is a wisdom. Mm-hmm. This is how I handled this situation. This is how I raised my kids. This is how I operated homeschooling. This is how we did it as a family. And I'll tell all those homeschooling families out there, that's timeless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, this has been so helpful. Um, I, I don't know if I mentioned earlier, but my husband and I do homeschool um, our kiddos too in a hybrid um, situation. And so I, I would say like one more thing that I might add to that list that you've already touched on, but I'll just restate here to close is just even the importance, like particularly with when you're talking about hermeneutics and and understanding how to read the Bible correctly is that 
like I just feel like we have been challenged in our own homeschooling of making sure that even though we are teaching our children that we remain students um, of the Bible, that we take that part um, of our spiritual life very seriously so that um, we we can be more confident with what we're passing on um, to our kids about God and help them to read the Bible, that we're doing that um, that we're doing that too. And I think that's especially relevant in our more post-Christian um, times that we're living in, as you talked about before, that we're not quite as biblically illiterate in my generation as as previous generations. And so we've got some work to do in this area. But as you mentioned, there's a lot, there's grave danger in not doing it. And there's such great benefit in doing it. So not only for our kiddos, but for us too. So yeah. Well, as always, thanks, Jim. Thank you for this. And um, I will just say one more time, we're going to plug a lot of stuff in the show notes um, that we talked about today. I, um, Jim has gave us a, a, a few things of, of, in terms of the benefits of homeschooling, but you've written more about this and talked about it. And I think people would find that helpful. So thank you. And thank you guys for listening. And we'll be back here again next week.